0: Just pray together as we begin. Father, thank you for your presence here. You are an omnipresent God. We acknowledge that. Lord, we just love you. We thank you for the gift of life, for the forgiveness of our sins, for the hope that we can see you again. And someday we shall stand before you and see you face to face. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the word of God as a lamp unto our feet, for the presence of the Holy Spirit who will lead us into all truth. And we believe that truth will truly set us free. Not just positioning, Lord, but actually in our own life where we can experience uh, that oneness with you that you've uh, made possible for all of us. So we commit ourselves to that end now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I, I think I, I need to tell you another story about two pastors who did go to heaven. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> they got there and found out that you know, their condominiums weren't ready yet, so uh said you got to go back, and uh you, for about two weeks he said you can go back as a pastor, who you've been for a number of years, and they both thought, no, I've kind of had it with people, and uh, well, you can go back any way you want to, so how would you like to go back? And one guy said, I'd like to go back as an eagle, and just soar over the Grand Canyon and just look at the beauty of your creation, and just soar in the heavenlies, and and uh View that for another two weeks. Gone. And the other guy thought for a moment, said, well, I'd like to, I'd like to be a stud. In fact, I'd like to be a, a cool stud. He was gone. And two weeks later, an angel was summoned to go get them. And and uh, one said, well, the angel said, where will I find them? He said, well, one will be easy. Just look for an eagle with a great big grin in his face over the Grand Canyon. The other one will be harder to find. He's on a snow tire in Detroit. (laughs) You had something else in mind? It's a major issue of communication. You know, it's, uh, you think you hear one thing and, and it's really something else. Uh, I just got off the phone two days ago from a man at a seminary who wants to write a book on opposing views on spiritual warfare, and he asked if I would be one. I think he sent a letter to Clint and Tim Warner, and and, uh, and I was I was trying to figure out where he was coming from because he did give me kind of the intro, and uh, and he said, well, there's one group that sees uh, basically the devil or demonic forces behind everything that we do, and uh, we need to understand his role in this world and whatever else. Then there are others who see him as a defeated foe. And uh, that our response to God is really a matter of growth and repentance in him and whatever else. And I was just sitting there. I said, what side did he see me on, on that one? And I'm going to guess? It was on the first. And I think he saw Clint and Tim there. And, uh, and I, th- I was really intrigued by that. I just thought, you know, hey, have you read any of my stuff? I called the guy, and he called me back. I said, you know, I, would I do the book? Of course not. The guy who had, I think, to write the opposite view from mine, I don't think would disagree with me in one bit. And I just thought, where is this perception coming from? Uh, you know, that's the danger that you really have in dealing with anything in reference to spiritual warfare. And in, in certain terminologies, <clears throat> we have a deliverance ministry. Let me encourage you not to use that term. It's a very legitimate term. Salvation is deliverance. You've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and the cause of, you know, <laughs> kingdom. But it's it's uh, <clears throat> it's loaded and fraught with stereotypes, generalizations, and uh, I don't even use the word spiritual warfare. I'm not against that, you know. Uh, but immediately you're in a certain camp in certain people's minds you know terminologies do that to us and so all my stuff you'll see spiritual conflicts or freedom ministries or whatever else those aren't loaded in people's minds and freedom is something everybody wants in one sense everybody can have so it's a tough game and it's part of it's just culture it's part of problem of have a language i saw the opposite thing i got to singapore i sent them the syllabus And he said, can we change this? You know, conflicts is really a bad word here. And uh, could we put it in spiritual warfare? Well, if you want. But see, that's another thing that I have trouble with is that, you know, I said, what is Freedom in Christ Ministries? Is it a spiritual warfare ministry? What do you think? No, I don't think so. That's not my perception. It's a Christ-centered living that takes into account the reality of the spiritual world. It has never been my focus. I I refuse to let it be. I'm not going to let it be for anybody else. Uh, you know, my focus is on demons. We're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The role of demons is to get my eyes off Jesus. You know, <clears throat> now am I discounting the reality of the spiritual battle I'm in? Of course not. It's just not my focus. My focus isn't on the battle, it's on the answer. And uh, that's so subtle. I mean, you know, you you learn that over a period of time. And, and it's easy. They said, uh, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that your name written in the last book of life. Don't rejoice in the fact that in in the naming of Jesus, you have authority over demons. You do, by the way, but uh, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the last book of life. Rejoice in the fact that you're a child of God uh, because everything springs out of that for all of us. Now, don't get me wrong. If people use the word spiritual warfare, I have no problem. All I'm telling you is you may invite some unnecessary criticism that probably could be avoided if we would just be very careful in our terminology. <clears throat> I was talking with Clint this morning, and I said that one of my publishers came out with a book, The Gift of Apostleship. Boy, you talk about a wrong title, <laughs> at least with me. I said, there is no gift of apostleship. Where in the world do you get that from? Well, 1 Corinthians 12. I said, let's take a look. And it says, first there were apostles, and then there were prophets, and then, then, then gifts of this, gifts of this. I said, well, see? You know, he makes a clear distinction. That's an office of the church. These are gifts. You know what the tragic part about that is? I probably won't ever read the book because the term we also bad on the cover. They may be describing a ministry of the church as very legitimate. They just call it the wrong thing. And uh, you know, terminology is 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 very very important for all of us. And otherwise, we needlessly polarize the body of Christ, or you know, throw ourselves or somebody else in a certain camp, and we really don't belong it there. I say one of the funnest parts about our ministry is 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 that routinely I hear, "I can't peg you." And I said, well, try Christian. And uh, and what is it within us that wants to peg people? Oh, you're one of them, you know. See, that's another thing, you know, the big charismatic and evangelical rift, you know, said, I can't raise my hands because people would think I'm one of them. I said, Dear Christian, one of them is one of you. You know, settle it now. You're going to have to beat each other up in heaven. But, uh, you know, you disagree with that, by the way? You don't think they're Christians? You better get used to it, man, because that's the fastest moving segment of the church worldwide. And um, without question, I mean, it isn't even a close second. In the next few years, uh, the two-thirds of the world that essentially is uh, 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 not pertaining to our worldview will be primarily Pentecostal. Um, I'm just telling you a fact. It's not... uh, whether I agree or disagree with it or anything else, I'm just telling you, that's the fastest segment. And the primary reason, I think, is, is that <clears throat> Pentecostals, by and large, have a have a, a worldview to begin with that's a little bit more like theirs than ours. And uh, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just trying to be honest with you that that's, that's really pretty much true. I've been all over the world. And uh, how do Pentecostals observe me? They like me. Never had a problem with one of them. Best conferences I've had have been in um, and uh, semis of God and and vineyards, honestly, they're nice people. Actually, <laughs> they don't fight like the, the fighting fundies do. All my problem has been in that hard right that just wants to, you know, beat up everybody. I said, you know, as long as you just beat each other up, I have no problem with it. But stop beating on me. I don't, you know, I don't want to fight. It's uh, <clears throat> it's 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 really those who who have made Christianity an intellectual pursuit. An academic exercise instead of a living relationship—that's what you end up doing. You know, fighting over petty little things. And the amazing part about it is, you think they all agree with each other? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, you, they're some of their own worst enemies are in their own camps. <clears throat> now, the conundrum that I have here, and the, the struggle is, is that I'm just as committed as they are to the authority and inerrancy of Scripture, and, and usually it's that crowd that's the most hard pushing it. And I'm saying, but. <laughs> I am too, but I don't want to look like you when I'm done. You know I don't want to grow up. I don't want to look like that. you know I, I was sharing with somebody here before the break for the message this morning. It was really interesting for me to hear. I was up in, in the Vancouver Island and a Methodist pastor came with his son to get his son fixed, and his wife was there, and he agreed to sit in for the whole week. Well when the son met me, about 22- year-old man on, on Monday, he just very openly said, "Well, mom's a Christian, dad isn't." Methodist ministry. And I said, what makes you say that? Well, after what he's told me, I I would would agree. Turned out he wasn't. But he became a Christian that week. He committed his heart to Christ. And I was sitting there on, I think it was Saturday, and we had lunch together. And and he was just very open, honest about it. He said, I've had 25 years of what I thought was ministry. And I I really look back, it really wasn't. He said, I got a few years left. And I think I'm, and it was very open, very excited about that. I mean, it was like he just discovered a candy store almost. It was like, bless his heart, came to Christ. And so he was very honest and open with me. I said, I said, tell me. I said, you know, you've read your Bible when you went to a seminary. Why didn't you believe it? He said, you know who I've been counseling for 25 years? Cast off of all those kind of churches that claim to hold to the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. Beat up, criticized, put down. I needed to hear that. And uh, I've seen that happen. And instead of going to church and being set free in Christ and told them there is no condemnation, that they're children of God, they, they go and get another guilt trip put on them. And that's kind of tragic, folks. I, something is painful when you even encounter that. I'll I tell you, I submit a good book to you, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Church by Dean Merrill. I like that book. I also like uh, what's so amazing about grace. Uh, we're slowly moving in, in that direction, but boy, he just very openly talks about graceless churches. No sense of God's love and forgiveness and acceptance and mercy and all the attributes that are so precious to us that represent God. But I want to go to church and get beat up. I want to go to church and get built up. And, uh, and go there and feel like, man, It's finished, and I'm on the winning side. And uh, that's the kind of church I want to go to. Well, why aren't our people growing? And how does this relate to all we've been talking about here? Uh, I'd like you to look at a passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here's one of those verses that I've read uh, I don't know how many times and uh, and probably focusing on the fact that there are the natural man and the carnal Christian and the the spiritual one. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. Now underline this, I would. For you are not yet able to receive it. Uh, indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and acting like mere men. Now, you know, I don't know why I never really saw that before, but I think that's exactly what I said, I think, in my introduction, in the first book I ever wrote, "Victory Over the Darkness. I was counseling with this guy, trying to disciple this 26-year-old guy, getting absolutely nowhere. I mean, I was spending time with him once a week. We would go for bike rides and whatever, and and uh, I got nowhere. I knew I got nowhere. I, we would try to read the Bible. And he would do an exercise at home and come back. We'd talk. I knew I was getting nowhere. I finally gave up. Only find out that two years later, he came over to see me and, and uh, for the first time confessed his sexual addiction. And, and he was sleeping with co-eds every week at the college he was going to, you know, while I was trying to disciple him. And I'm here to tell you, he was not able to receive it. And, uh, and I've seen people sit in my office. Uh, Look at me. Tell me later. I saw your lips move, but I didn't hear a word you were saying. I've seen people, uh, uh, I've seen seminary students here. read this book. What did it say? I had a seminary student, president of the student body, actually, could not read Bondage Breaker. Could not read it. Everybody was turning in a weekly assignment, went through the steps in the class. Two days later, he turned in the whole assignments, sending people free all over Portland, Oregon right now. And uh, it's just amazing how people, they, they just, they can't receive it. They're just sitting there. They'll look blank. They'll go out, think you, Pastor. Ask him what you preached on Wednesday of that week. Ask him. You know, I have. I, I tell one of the more intriguing ones to me was, and, and this this goes back a long time ago, where a, a pastor's wife uh, came to see me when I was teaching the Talbot, probably about 83. It's a long time ago. And I'll never forget talking to her. After half an hour, I said, you really love Jesus, don't you? Oh, yeah. I said, you really love the Holy Spirit, don't you? Oh, yeah, sure. Talks to me every morning. Uh-uh, it wasn't the Holy Spirit. <laughs> this poor gal would go shopping, and she'd have a little thought in her head. If you buy that, you'll curse your son. Oh, can't buy that. And this is a pastor's wife, folks. And, uh, and she'd go home and start to put on a red dress. You can't wear that red dress. That's the brother of Christ. I mean, just bizarre associations like that. And I said, "But you don't even like God the Father, do you?" And she started to cry. And it was really interesting because to her, uh, God the Father was like her father. You know this old story we all hear: is just patterns of the flesh. And you, you there's some people when you say you're loving Heavenly Father, and they'll almost cringe because the word Father to them is it, all it does is and triggers them back to painful memories of their childhood. Well, anyway, uh, her mother was the presenting problem, really. I mean, she was a very legalistic, demanding, critical, condemning kind of a woman. But that wasn't her problem. She could forgive her. It was her dad who sat there and did nothing. Sat there like a lump. And that's all she sees her Heavenly Father. He sits there like a lump. And he doesn't do anything. Jesus went to the cross. The Holy Spirit speaks to me. God sits there like a lump. Wow, she's got a distorted concept of God, folks. And, you know, and, and that has to be corrected. So I reached into my files and I pulled out a set of tapes by A.W. Tozer, Knowledge of the Holy. Somebody had taken them off some reel-to-reel tapes years ago and put them on cassettes. And I said, go home and listen to those things. She did, three times. You know what the result was? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You know, in all honesty, I didn't share that with anybody for about eight years. (laughs) I'm chairman of the practical theology department. You know, I'm deeply committed to evangelism and discipleship and Christian education and and preaching. That was all under our department. And boy, you know, the proclamation of God's words and God's words will change people's lives. I just gave her the best teaching I'd ever, I I could give anybody on the attributes of God at that time. And the impact on her was zero. Zero. So what am I doing here? What am I doing at the seminary? You know, I'm in teaching these people to get out there and proclaim that word of God and teach the truth and love. And, and uh, I just, in love, gave this scale the best I knew how. And, and the impact was zero. You know, I struggled with that for a long time. And I knew there were other people like that, too. I was, I was even dealing with them in counseling. Couldn't process it. Wasn't making any sense to them. Well, uh, you know, the ironic part about that story is, is, is that when we finally got to the heart of her problem, and really brought resolution to it. Her whole feelings towards God changed that afternoon. Her mind had actually recorded the truth of God's words. I've seen that as seminary students. Is says, God, a God of love. Oh, yes. Theologically, here's the verse right here. John, 1 John 4. God is love. How do you feel about it? I don't think he loves me. Well, you just read right here that he, he loves you. What do you believe? Well, I, I guess I believe that. How come you don't feel any different? I don't know. You see... That's what trauma has done in our life. And and we just bypass that and we go out and say, well, just just don't say it twice and say it a hundred times until you absolutely know it. Is that what causes you to know it? Uh, Where is the connection here? You see, if a natural man cannot discern the things of God, but wouldn't it in a sense be the same problem with the fleshly person who is out of fellowship with God? There are issues that haven't been resolved between himself and God. And frankly, all they're running on is their flesh. They're still fleshly. Why? Because there's strife and jealousy amongst you. Wouldn't it make sense, then, that in order for this person to be ready for solid meat, I'd have to somehow resolve that conflict in their life? Wouldn't it? See, that's what led to my whole thinking Uh, back early on. I said, how do I get a person out of this? How do I help them resolve that conflict? I said, well, the answer to me is Christ. So the key is to get them connected to God. Well, what are the problems that are separating me from God? Now, here's where it gets really interesting, because immediately, you know, we jump to all the, the... well, he doesn't smoke or drink, you know. You know, I, you know, the, if there are some people who almost quite equate you know, spirituality with the absence of not doing bad things. Would you feel good if your daughter brought this interesting-looking character home and said, Mom, I want to marry him. He's asked me to marry him, but he doesn't drink and he doesn't smoke and he doesn't go out with a dirty woman. Well, whoop-de-doo, what in the world does he do? You know, just because you don't do a few things bad. I think there are actually churches that will allow people to be elders in their church purely in the basis that they haven't been caught yet on anything wrong. Well, that's not what scripture says. Scripture says they ought to have a good report with those outside in the community that, you know, they ought to be a man of one woman, and you know, a cetera, like that. So that that's the qualifications. Those are all character issues that, that should be somewhat observable in life. But uh, boy, there's a lot of churches, you can be a member of a board tea Sunday school class if you've never drank or smoked, you know? And I find that almost amazing. Especially since a little drink and smoke now and then probably isn't even hardly even worth mentioning from God's perspective. It's just like, uh, but I, you know, I can have a little pride problem. That'd be all right. But see, here's our problem. See, we say, well, I'm going to get on with God. Yeah, I'm a little bit prideful. Oh, that's tremendous. God's opposed to you. Is that right or wrong, folks? Yeah, I'm a little bit of a rebel. Well, whoop-de-doo. That's the sin of divination. Don't euthanize that. It's the sin of witchcraft. You got a rebellious problem. You got the worst problem in the world. Get under authority, folks. Um, all of us. You know why one of our church stinks so bad across this country? We got people sitting in their pulpits bad mouthing their president instead of submitting to him and praying for it. Do I like his character? No, I don't. But frankly, we're not presenting an answer to him. We're his problem. We got a sexually addicted president, folks. I hope that's not judgmental. I don't want it to be, but. It sure appears that he's, he's got a sexual addiction. Everybody I've seen has got, that's what it looks like to me. Now what would happen if this man came before national television to talk to our country and said, my fellow Americans, I'm coming to you to confess a personal problem that I have. I have a sexual addiction. Like any other addictive behavior, I've lied to you about a lot of issues in my personal life. And I've lied to my wife. And I'm confessing that to you. And I'm getting help for this area of my life. And I would appreciate your prayers. I do believe from this moment forward that I can separate that from politics and I want to be the kind of president that you elected me to be. How do you think this country would respond? I'll bet his polls would go up another 5-10%. Why didn't he do that? By the way, because he has that problem, why do you think the first week that he was in office, the first two things he did was to uh, do away with uh, any laws against abortion and homosexuality? And you say, well, my private life has nothing to do with public fishing. What a lie. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. You know, why did Nixon go down? Because he did something wrong? I still don't know what he did wrong. He went down because he insisted he'd done no wrong. Is that right? Yeah, I'm a little bitter about that, but I'm gonna go on with God. No, you're not. God himself will turn you over the tormentors. Won't he? but I don't smoke or drink. Oh, for crying out loud, light up one time. Everybody would probably be blessed if you did that. I mean, it was, <clears throat> you know, the sins of the spirit are soft, far more worse than, you know, the little fleshly responses that we have every now and then. It's just amazing. And, you know, I, you know and, and some of that is almost more culture than anything else. I was over in England, just a real, truly a spiritual leader over there, did a thing in his church, and afterwards he said, let's go out and eat. So I went out, my wife and I and his associate pastor and their wives, and had a little prep room before we went into this old 300-old building. this just really a neat old place out in the country. and <clears throat> He sat down and had two beers and so did his associate, and each had a bottle of wine for dinner. Now, in this country, you'd be thrown out of your church. Over there, he's the leader. They did get drunk, it's part of their culture. Uh, take a little wine for your stomach. Maybe even a lot of wine, I don't know. <laughs> now I don't drink you know I don't do it because I don't want to be a stumbling block but over there it's not a stumbling block because it's not doesn't have the cultural stigma it does here it's just kind of interesting it's just you go up in the grain belt country and the deacons will have a few beers but boy they're against smoking you go down to tobacco country they all sit around and smoke their cigars but don't drink <laughs> you know so my my where my heart is at on this thing I said what you've got to do You see, the sin that you're observing is is not the cause. It's the effect. It's a result of not abiding in Christ. It's a result of not walking by the Spirit. The answer isn't to stop doing those things, the answer is to start walking by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. It's to start abiding in Christ. You don't lose fellowship because you sin, you lost fellowship, therefore, sin is inevitable. And we, we deal with the with the effect, not the cause. Uh, the, the purpose here is to get this person radically right with God. You know, I, I shared something in doing a table. I just got to share this with you because I, I just, I am so grieved about a perception that we have as a church here in the country. And I believe that God gave us an object lesson, you know, late August or September that was so powerful that if we miss it, I think we're going to have to apologize to God. We saw possibly two of the most Uh, respected, popular ladies in this century maybe die in the same week. And you couldn't find two people more different. One was beautiful, the other one wasn't. That's kind. And uh, uh, one was rich and the other one really committed himself to poverty. And they both died in the same week and the whole world rose up and paid homage to them. And we could sit here and debate the theology of one and the morality of the other and miss the whole point, folks. They rose up because people perceived that they cared. That's it. Both of them. One was so caring that they gave her a Nobel Peace Prize. Even the pagans of the world would, would recognize a religious woman simply because they say, this is the most caring person I've ever seen. We could even argue that I wasn't all that caring. That's not the point. They will know us for our love. Do they? Is that the goal of our instruction? When you go to church, to you get beat up or build up? You know, boy. Unless we turn that around, we're losing a witness here. The Lord says, "Go learn what this means." I desire compassion, not sacrifice. Oh God, I went to seminary. I gave up my home three times for you. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. To quote out of the Old Testament, it's God's. It's, it's actually the word "hased" is God's loving kindness. I. That's what I want for you. That's the goal of our instruction. You know my disciples for their love. And that, that's why I said, that has to be the goal of our instruction. And uh, that's why God broke me, to be honest with you. I mean, I was a seminary prof, had all the answers. That was another great change in my life. I said, uh, I was pretty good at winning arguments. I was an aerospace engineer. Math was my best subject, you know. I could win an argument. No converts, but won a lot of arguments. <laughs> I finally got enough maturity in my life. By the time I was at Talbot to teach on evangelism, I didn't teach them how to win the argument. I told them how to avoid it. I said, the argument isn't the issue. The reason a nuclear physicist doesn't trust in Christ same reason your garbage collector doesn't. They don't want to. It's not an intellectual issue. It's a moral one. And uh, they just want to run their own life and don't want anybody to interrupt their lifestyle. That's why. Someday they're going to want to and be there for them. But uh, boy, until that time, I said, it's not my obligation to change them or the world. My obligation is to be the person God created me to be and share the truth and love. And if they don't receive it, they don't receive it. Move on. Doesn't he tell us to do that? So give up. Start trying to control government. You know, I think God is showing us that too. He said, boy, if government would only change, this would be a good country to live in. So he gave us Clinton. I think it's God's choice. I honestly believe that. I think it's God's choice. And and if, and if we don't clean up our own ship first, I mean, why are we pointing a finger at Washington? Look at our own churches beating each other up, you know, I think it was Swindoll says, the church is like Noah's Ark. You couldn't stand the stink inside if it wasn't for the storm outside. And uh, see, I, I want to clean up the church. I haven't given up on the church. I believe in the church. It's the body of Christ. I don't think there's another answer. I think God intended to work through his body. And, uh, and I love the church. That's why I'm beating myself up to do what I can to, to bring that given freedom and help people realize that in every church in their country. And this is so critical for us to understand. You know I've Judy, I think I will share I was telling this morning I said it's like God gave me an illustration you know Pentecostals would cost it a vision, but I think it's just a good illustration, <laughs> and um maybe it is a vision I don't know, but I, I just said you know a lot of our people they go into their homes and they're like uh uh bat caves and they go to the churches and they're bigger bat caves, and there's bats hanging all over there, dripping stuff all over them Blew, you know it's just a and so this looks bad, so let's recarpet it and uh but don't disturb the bats. <laughs> you know? uh, uh, just leave them hang there and pretend like they don't exist, and we'll get on with our life. And meanwhile, you know, put instead of putting up the shield of faith and stop those fiery darts, ping, ping. You know, but don't do anything with those things. And I'm saying, for crying out loud, clean out that stupid cave, submit to God, resist the devil, and get on with your lives. But I, but you know, the, the tragedy of any kind of healthcare profession as soon as you attempt to bring some sense of resolution to something that's when it gets worse not better isn't that true anytime that you attempt to bring light into this dark world men love darkness more than light you're going to have some opposition and it's like leaving experiencing salvation and leaving egypt and you say "Ha! you know finally we're free well kind of actually they are you know they're free from egypt they're free from the bondage you can find the four spiritual laws in exodus 3 i mean just it's really fascinating uh, but they get out there and we don't want this man anymore. We want onions and leeks and garlic and, and we want to go back. And see the problem with it is as soon as you go in and seek some help, does it get worse or better? At least initially. Oh, it's going to get worse. And you can easily conclude at that step, man, let's go back. It's better there. And the answer is no. Press on to the promised land. You know, Work through the crisis. Work through the issues. But it's going to probably have to get worse before it gets better. Um but you, or you can sit there and live with the bats. Now, I gotta admit the first time you chased a chimp out the bats, <laughs> oh man, ever cleaned out a chicken house? I mean, boy, that's enough to tempt you to just leave it there lying because it is really a horrible job. the thing turns to dust and powder and you about to choke to death. But boy, you better clean that thing or you all your chickens are gonna die in you. And uh, man, this is so true all around us, I said you don't have to live like that but but I, i'm telling you i would have a tendency to say that most of our pastors and most of our churches would prefer to just ignore the stupid bats and live with the manure and uh and rather than rock the boat and create a problem and uh, just live with the whole status quo i'm not satisfied with that i'm not going to miss out on what god you know created for us provided for us on that cross and live some kind of a defeated life for the rest of my life and just hang on until the rapture and that's a choice we all have. You can live that way or you can clean the house. But I think he's following us to repentance, folks. Deep repentance. Take a hard look at ourselves. Don't compare yourself to somebody else. Compare yourself to God. The only reason you can do that is you're already forgiven. God loves you. He loves you in a way you'll never fully understand. He loves you so much he'll let you sit in a group of homosexuals and be forced to say you're a co-addict and codependent. dependent Until you see yourself. I could have left there and see these guys are all screwed up and wrong and missed the whole point, folks. And humbling, of course it's humbling. But what does he tell us to do? Humble yourself before the almighty hand of God, and he will exalt you. I wouldn't be standing before you today if I hadn't gone through an experience like that. I can honestly tell you that. I'd have slugged it out of seminary and been probably a fairly popular prof and gone on to glory and lived a pretty comfortable life. But uh, this isn't a ministry for, for comfort. Unless you give it to somebody else. <laughs> but it's a ministry I could never turn my back on. I, I tell ya, you, you, you be used of God to set a few people, marriages, and churches free, folks, you will never go back. You're hooked. Thank God, you know. The, the danger of this ministry is not that you will stop, it's that you can't stop. <laughs> He's become a workaholic, and uh, you know that, that, that's honestly an issue. How do you say no? How do you leave town, and you say oh, you're the only one that can help me, and he's somewhat right Maybe at that time sit up there until midnight, and and after I say wait a minute. I'm not the deliverer here folks uh, This is crazy You know, I'm not the answer And the answer is the body of Christ and let's equip them as best we can and you're going to hear an incredible story of how that can be done in the workshop after this from from Julie Zalke, but I just want to show you how transferable this is. About this time last year I was doing a, the ministering for the Evangelical Free Church. This person could be here, I don't know who this is to be honest with you, but he handed me a card that says you've been salt in my life. He said, Dear Neil, the card is true. God has uh, used you in my life, my marriage and my ministry. I do thank the Lord and you for the materials you've created. It's wonderful to see something that works with all sorts of people with all sorts of problems. I stumbled onto your material a year ago last October. I used it for Sunday school. God was using it to prepare us for working with a severely demonized man. In preparing for the steps with him, the elders and I went through the steps first. Strongly recommend that, by the way. I personally had a bondage to sin broken in my own life. As a result of it, my wife found freedom from her family's occultic background. I'm in a new church now, just moved in in November. Not much happened the first two months, but without advertising or promoting, God sent over 12 people to me in January to go through the steps. There's been a great deep work of God in people's hearts. Two of the elders resigned to get their lives straightened out. One has been having an affair for the last two years. Told me his hypocrisy didn't bother him until I came. (laughs) Well, it was the Lord, not me. I'm honored that God has utilized me to touch lives. I'm taking him and his wife through the steps this next week. I took the other elder and his wife through the steps last week. He had bondage to pornography, masturbation, strip joints when he was on business trips. It was wonderful to see both freedom and find freedom and renew and deepen the relationship. What a joy and privilege to encourage people as they go through the steps. One of her Sunday school teachers has been experiencing nighttime terror and demonic dreams. Through God's chance events, she told my wife about these difficulties. Uh, I took her and her husband through the steps two weeks ago. When it came to forgiveness, I had to teach, exhort, and encourage her for over an hour. I had to physically put the pencil in her hand. Took another 30 minutes to write the first name. But eventually she made a decision went for it. God is so good. And the next Sunday there was so much joy and peace and freedom on the face of both her and her husband. Anyway, talks about it. Now what's neat about that is, I don't know this person. Uh, that It's actually, in a sense, that transferable. The reason is, is that there's a billion ways you can sin. The answer is the same. There's a million ways you can be abused. You still need to forgive. The path back to God can't be that numerous, can it? That we make this thing so difficult that only the intellectuals can figure it out? You know, honestly, I think it's the intellectuals that screwed us up. You know, it's like the old question years ago. You know, we, you know, they just—it's pride. It's an intellectual pride. And uh, listen, I've been in higher education. I got so many degrees they call me Fahrenheit. You know, and there's a tremendous danger in that. Potentially, there really, honestly, is. You get—you start leaning on your own understanding. That's why all of our great seminaries 200 years ago are all, you know, liberal Ivy schools today. And, and it can happen. People who started out totally committed to God, and next thing you know, they're apostate. They started to lean on their own understandings to have always acknowledged God. And, and it was devastating. And you see, one of the issues that illustrates that, I think, is this. If I said out on my counter out there is a book on, uh, on the um, life of Christ, what would come to your mind? Wouldn't you think of the historical life of Christ on planet Earth and how he lived in Israel? That's what comes to your mind, isn't it? When I say the life of Christ, I'm not talking about the little tenure he had here on planet Earth. I'm talking about the life of Christ that's in you. You give a person the truth without the enablement of the presence of God in your life, and they can't hear it. They're a natural man. They can't discern the things of God. And we say true, sense of free, but Jesus and I... And the way and the truth and the life and it's not enough to educate a mind we have to renew a heart And the only way that can be done is to encounter christ on a personal uh, level i didn't fall in love with a doctrine about jesus but if i had the right doctrine it would help me to fall in love with jesus i didn't go to seminary hopefully to find out all kinds of things about god i wanted to know god Paul was the leading candidate for theologian of the year when Christ struck him down. Pharisee of Pharisees, studying in Gamaliel, Hebrew of Hebrews, as far as the law found, blameless. He said, I count it all but rubbish, apart from the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And, uh, and we're in ministry. I don't care if you're a counselor or a disciple or a pastor. And, and if God's will for our life is our sanctification, you got one primary focus to get this person so radically right with God and reestablish a relationship that is so critical. But if you hold iniquity in your heart, God won't hear you. If you hang on to your bitterness and won't forgive, God himself will turn you over to tormentors. If you want to hang on to your pride, God will be opposed to you. And you aren't going to get on with God in that way. And unless we come to terms with those issues, Um, there will be no repentance. There will be no revival. We're waiting for God to do something. Let me ask you an honest question. What more does God need to do for you to live a victorious, fruitful, productive life in him? What more does he need to do? Defeated the devil, forgave you your sins, equipped you with eternal life, gave you the Holy Spirit to lead you into all truth, the word of God, the lamp on your feet. It's finished, folks. The only missing ingredient here is our repentance and faith in him and helping our people to deeply repent and and grow in Christ uh, by faith. I want to point out a growth process in in, uh, what I alluded to this morning in Colossians chapter 1. I I mentioned the fact that there is an intention by God, I think, to see our growth as, as like a slinky. Remember that little toy? snake its way down staircases and swing from one hand to the other and it's one of those endearing toys that uh, never seems to lose its popularity and keeps coming back and and, uh, I know I just bought my Sammy one but anyway uh, and and I think that's the intention of growth it's like a spiral that that goes around and around and around and around like it there if that truth now notice what he says here verse uh, 9 for this reason also since the day we heard of it we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now that's kind of a fascinating verse. Strengthened with power according to the glorious might and attaining all steadfastness and patience and joyously giving thanks. Now I see a cycle here that he's talking about. And it starts off with the knowledge of of his will. Now, that's a knowledge of his will. Now, I don't want to make too big a deal out of this thing, but uh, I can present somebody with what is perceived to be the truth, and they could even choose at that time what's from God that is true, but uh, filled with a knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, I think personally here, as we've tried to tear this apart in the common made holiest, is that that's a very important juncture from that move to the next one, because the first one, here's a knowledge of his will. I know what the word says. Now, how does that apply? Have I allowed that truth to enter into my heart? Because if it doesn't do that, I could intellectually agree with you and go home morally the same. Now, I've seen that happen, and you have too, all of our lives. Well, that was true, you know. You know, I, I just got to share with you that about four years ago in a conference in California, associate pastor was uh, doing all the MCN, and he had lunch with me and a nice guy. really was a nice guy. Um, And uh, actually, I counseled with his wife on some issues she was struggling with when I was there. Four years later, just this last week, I was on the telephone with him, the chairman of his board, and another elder. And he came forward uh, uh, with a personal problem in his life. And uh, I don't want to relate to you what that was. But it really kind of came up because they were calling me because they knew that this man had gone to this conference four years ago. And so fortunately, I didn't have to ask. They asked him when we were at a conference call why didn't you deal with that at that time? And he said, I don't I don't know. He said, it's just like it went right over my head. And uh, now he's in kind of a crisis, whether or not he leaves his ministry or, or not, I'm not sure. I think he should, should stay. I, as we've talked, he personally um, came for help and pulled together an elder and a and a, and a good Christian counselor in that area and a, another friend and, uh, and the chairman of the board of his church. So four of them, uh, he confessed it to them and asked for their prayer and said, I'm seeking for help. Now, there's no, it, at what he shared with them, I'm not sure would disqualify him from ministry even. Uh, but one of the deacons, for whatever stupid reason, or elders in their church, thought, gee whiz, I don't think he's elder qualified. So he went and shared it with the elder board. And they're asking me, is now the pastor qualified? I said, I'll tell you one, in my estimation, who is not qualified in that church. And that's that deacon. And man, I don't need friends like that. And I said, uh, and plus the fact, he's a lot more qualified now than he was four years ago when he came to you. And I said, in your mind, he would still be qualified if he hadn't come forward and asked for help. Now you're going to nail him for asking for help? I said, you do that for the next 20 years? There's not one person in your church that's going to go to any of your leadership and ask for help. I was absolutely flabbergasted by that. I said, "If I did that, my ministry would be over with tomorrow." And um, I just—I was so upsetting to me. But you're still left with the question because it was something that was not good. I mean, it was creating a real. Why wise wife put up with it, I have no idea. She knew all about it. She was kind of part of it. But I'm sharing this only to point out something with you. I said, uh, "Why didn't he?" Well, you can interact with material in any way you want to but sometime in life if god really loves you he's probably going to show you what's there and uh, i like this guy he's a good man and everybody of us has a little closet that gets opened every now and then and some of it is just a growth issue in our life we we deal with it as it comes that's why i've always tried to make a distinction between onions and bananas are you familiar with my terminology here well let me explain that I, i there are people i'm a banana let me tell you what a banana is a banana is somebody who has one layer of skin on it. Uh, <clears throat> I've had, I was fortunate. I had a childhood that was pretty good. Uh, Mom and Dad stayed married. They celebrated their 60th winning anniversary. They didn't mercilessly beat me. <laughs> Dad was pretty heavy-handed, but uh, uh, I've dealt with that. I have total memory of my past. I don't have any blocked out, repressed memories that I know of. Uh, I could sit down honestly before God, and I could clean house in one setting. There are people like that. I'm fortunate. I was one of them. And um, now I'm not done growing. There's a lot of growth issues in my life. That, uh, but at, at that moment, I could resolve everything in my mind that I knew of in the past that I could before God and get radically right with God. And uh, But there's a lot of onions out there. <clears throat> onions will come off one layer at a time. If you try to peel that whole thing at once, would, you'd lose them, folks. They'd be overwhelming. They couldn't do it. They couldn't handle it. And I think God graciously removes one layer at a time for these kind of people. If you're dealing with any kind of dissociative disorder, it's going to be an onion, not a banana. And you'll think you had incredible victory taken through the steps or some other approach like that, and you did for that layer. And two weeks later, two, day, two days later, you're dealing with another layer. Now, I think that's a gracious thing of God because I think if you open up that whole can of worms, whew, you'd lose them, folks. This is too overwhelming. So God graciously brings us out of that. Now, you're already a child, you're a child of God, you know. And uh, I think you can root that host personality pretty firmly in Christ. <laughs> and and I think God is there. And I think only he can bind up that brokenhearted. But there are cases, folks, that it just, there's a process that God takes you through to bring you out of that darkness because it was just too intense. And, uh, and I, I, I can thank God for that, to be honest with you. But what I'm trying to say here, between the knowledge of his will, See, I can go to seminary and learn the knowledge of his will and not grow one bit. And then here's where you can break that, that slinky cycle right here. Just increasing the knowledge, you no know, development of character, no transformation of my life. You're just intellectualizing it. <clears throat> You're not incarnating it. The word of God was intended to be incarnated, folks, uh, in our lives. Well, and so then you, you come to that point where truth enters into the heart and the result is, is spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's not intellectual. It's spiritual wisdom and understanding. Tracking with me here? That's what it says. Uh, All spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, that wisdom and understanding, that sense of application, it enters in my heart. And and what happens is it touches the affect. And and then what follows is, so that you will walk now in a manner worthy in him. Because once I've allowed my mind to entertain that thought, it, it truly does enter into my heart. In other words, I didn't sit outside and inspect it. I entered in. I appropriated that. I said, that's truth. God, show me what that means to me. I want it in my heart. And at that moment, let's say it does, it'll touch that affect. Your emotions are essentially a response to what you think or choose. And it drives the will. Now, you can stop right here. You can sit there and say, I know I should be doing this. I know how to apply this thing. It's touched my heart, and I don't do it. You just stop the cycle of growth. And you can just sit there, stop, stuck. Go back, learn more knowledge of his will, Stuck. Uh, intriguing part about this is walk in a manner worthy in the Lord to please him in all respects bearing fruit now see is when you start to bear fruit not because of the knowledge of his will but because you allowed it to enter into your heart in all spiritual wisdom and understanding and because you actually then did it if you know these things happy or blessed are you if you do them see and uh, please him in all respects bearing fruit (coughs) in every good work now notice this and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, boy, there's some people who just bristle at this, but truth of the matter is, I really believe this is is that that increase in knowledge now comes as a result of your obedience over here. It's it's like looking at First or Second Peter, that we have become a partake of the divine nature. Therefore, on your face faith, faith supply moral excellence, and your moral excellence knowledge, and you kind of go, wait a minute, isn't that order? Reverse there? Shouldn't it be knowledge first and then moral excellence? Now this is really interesting. It's like a child who says, I don't see why I have to do that. You do it and you'll know why. Um, It's it's a, you say, well you're basing this then on experience. That is not true. This starts with the knowledge of his will and increases in the knowledge of his will. Now, what we've observed, and you'd have to get the book to see this on this one chapter, once that truth is entered into the heart, it touches the affect, it drives the will, and then in the process, it's rather remarkable, what comes around is, in the process of the activation of my will, in other words, I did it, I start living this way, it come back and increases my knowledge as well as it touches my affect. And, uh, and it's like a cycle that keeps going around. But you can stop it right here. Ah, I've arrived. No, go back to the Word, the knowledge of God's will. Apply it to your heart. Go do it. Come back to the Word. Apply it to your knowledge, heart. Then go out and do it. And you just keep doing that. But I tell you, you know, and it can be just aspects of your life. It's like evangelism. I said, I could sit here for 20 years, teach evangelism, never lead anybody to Christ. My knowledge won't increase either. Well, I'll read more books about it, but truth of the matter is, noisy, gone, clanging cymbal, have no love. But eventually, if you want to teach evangelism, you better go start evangelizing. If you want to teach pastoring? Better get out there and pastor. You want to set somebody free? Set yourself free first. <laughs> and then start doing it. I said, you know what I didn't know when I first started this was profound. Actually, that's still true. (laughs) I always tell people, there's many, 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 many things I don't know, none of which I hope to talk about for the next hour or so here. (laughs) Can I share with you what I think is the major issue that we're dealing with here in this country and on this whole process now? If we understand that there has to be a way. When I set out these steps of freedom, what was the whole thinking behind that thing? The whole thinking behind that thing was to get this person to resolve the conflicts that are critical between themselves and God. That was the issue. I knew pride was a problem. I knew rebellion was a problem. I knew bitterness was a problem. I knew sin was a problem. And so somehow or another, you got to come to terms with those issues. And uh, and 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 and, the, and helping that person submit to God then resisting the devil is, you know, all the bats are detached from the roof, you know, at that stage, you know, get out of here. And it's, in fact, for some people, my first complaints were it's too easy. I said, well, praise the Lord. I've tried the other, it's hard. <laughs> you chase them out. Ah, you know, they're gone. Come right back. You know, you got to remove the ground, folks. You, you have to do that. You, you gave them, you opened the door is the whole point. See, that's the problem. Why did I get bats in my cave? You opened the door. See? And, and, and that's why you have to assume your responsibility. You know, in terms of how much of this relates to us interpersonally, go look at one chapter, Ephesians chapter 5. While you're turning here, one of the major problems that I see is that we have equated repentance with confession. That's tragic. Confession is the first step to repentance. But if all you think the answer is is to confess it, then I'll tell you what you're going to end up. Sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess, I give up. Well, I think the picture is really sin, confess, repent, resist, close the door, and change. Now that would be repentance. But close the door. And don't go back and open it up again. Well, <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4, I'm sorry, uh, where am I at here? Um, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. It's literally, actually, a place. I'd like to show you something. We've got a whole chapter here. Uh, we got one chapter on on uh, the world and the flesh, explaining that, and then one chapter on the devil, the as enemies of sanctification. I, I thought I would just uh, uh, read something to you because, and I'll well, let me just read it. And I'll explain why. Additional affirmation that believers can be influenced is seen in these words from Paul: "In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold." The word foothold, uh, topaz, literally means a place. Carl Braun says that to give place designates, as in Romans 12:19, affording free play, wide space of course in the heart. Sinful anger brings even the Christian's heart into the power of Satan, from whom he was free, destroying the fellowship with the Redeemer and his grace. Marcus Barth says the warning in, in chapter 4 can be summed up this way, the devil will take possession of your heart if your wrath endures. Finally, John Edie says of this passage, Envy, cunning, and malice are the preeminent feelings of the devil, and if wrath gain the empire of the heart, it lays it open to him and to those fiendish passions which are identified with his presence and operations. Clearly the matter of a believer's sin is not simply a matter of the flesh, it is also that of the devil as well. William Hendrickson points out, The devil will quickly seize the opportunity of changing our indignation, whether righteous or unrighteous, into a grievance, a grudge, a nursing of wrath, and unwillingness to forgive, Paul was conscious of the reality the power and the deceitfulness of the devil, as 6.10 shows. What he means, therefore, is that from the very start, the devil must be resisted. No place, whatever, must be given to him, no room to enter or to stand, end of quote. Charles Hodge says, anger when cherished gives the tempter great power over us, as it furnishes a motive to yield his evil suggestions. Well, let me tell you why I wrote that whole quote. Every one of these people I quoted is a well-known Reformed theologian. Now we did that kind of purposefully, because oftentimes it's it's uh, kind of the hardcore Reformed who don't want to acknowledge the fact that that devil can have that kind of an input into a believer's life, and these are all very solid, committed, Reformed theologians. And I'm not saying that to put them down or anything else, I'm just trying to say that that there's good teachings on, on every aspect of this thing when we simply recognize the fact that yes, by the way we live our lives, we can give the devil a place in our life. Um, At the core of my being, is my ownership lost? Never, see. Um, But boy, you can give him a place. And uh, until you acknowledge and deal with that, folks, you're probably going to be stuck with a lot of those feelings and emotions and and struggling with our thought life. The good news is repentance will get you out of that. Now, if you were the devil, what would you do? Well, if I was just purely a strategist, I'll tell you what I would do. I would try to divide your mind. Because a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways." And we are clearly warned that uh, in 1 Timothy 4.1 that the Holy Spirit explicitly says that in the latter days people will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceiving spirits and teachings of demons. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, I am concerned to say deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, the battle is in the mind. That's where it's at. That's why it's truth to set you free. Secondly, I try to divide your marriage because a house divided against itself cannot stand. The Lord is praying that we'd be single-minded and that our marriages would become one. And then I would try to divide the body of Christ. Fortunately, in our churches, we have nobody that's double-minded and all of our marriages are experiencing the oneness in Christ and and the body of Christ in America has no sectarianism and there's no divisions in the body of Christ in America. Now, it wouldn't be totally fair to blame the devil for all of that. There's the the world system we raised in, and there's the flesh and our own pride and our own arrogance and that kind of thing. But but I'd have to say who really is behind that. It would probably be the God of this world, Prince of Power of the Air. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He's deceived the whole world, Scripture says. And uh, we have to be careful that we do not uh, receive our attachments and, and uh input uh, from there in terms of rather than according to Christ. Well, I'm bringing that kind of resolution about that, how do we resolve that? If I have, in a sense, had these conflicts and this envy amongst ourselves. well, Here's what I think we've done in in, in attempting to help people and uh, getting out of our legalism, and as I'll explain in a moment or so, if you did that in terms of how to live my Christian life, chances are you would end up in the second half of Paul's epistles. Now that's kind of interesting because uh, even my seminary Greek prof told me very clearly, he said Paul's epistles are divided very cleanly: first half theological, second half practical. So if you want to go to Ephesians and find out, you know, in terms of how a husband or wife should respond, you'd end up in chapter five, wouldn't you? It's not in chapter one. It's chapter 5. And Colossians, is in chapter 3. It's not chapter 1. It's not chapter 2. It's, uh, you can just kind of draw a line in all of Paul's epistles. Well, in going there then, because he's our predominant uh, epistle writer in the New Testament, uh, what we've ended up with is a very subtle form of Christian behavioralism. That sounds a little like this. You ought not to do that. You ought to do this. That's not the best way to do it. There's a better way to do it. Okay, I'll try. And we're huffing and puffing ourselves into a burnout. Now here's the damaging thing folks, if you looked at that book and they did an exhaustive study where scripture had to say about being a husband and a wife, they'd probably draw a lot from the old testament under the law and they'd draw a lot from the second half of Paul's epistles and you develop a lot of very, very good spokes. We even boast then, well I'm not a legalist, really? Isn't all you've done is gone from negative legalism, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, to positive legalism, do this, 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 this, Boy, if you'd only do this, it would surely work. Now, boy, nowhere is that more evident than our ministry to our families, marriages and children. If you look at what's happened in our culture, I'm not saying this as a critic, I'm saying this now as an observer. I'm not pointing my finger It just happens. It just evolves over time. But uh, prior to 1960, Crusade used to publish a thing that said if a family prayed together, had devotions together, only one in a thousand separated. You don't hear that anymore. (laughs) Uh, But it was true that at that time. And uh, at that time, the divorce rate in society was about 40%. Now that's moved up over 50%. And amongst our Christians, 35, 40%. Brother Sobering. Well, Part of the reason for this thing was uh, the Vietnamese war, free sex, free drugs, just wreaked havoc on our families and our churches. <clears throat> I remember we used to say years ago, we want a family-oriented church. This is a family-oriented ministry. If you are preaching to a congregation where you believe that the husband is married to his first wife, and that was her first husband, and they got 2.2 children, and, and he works, and she says to take care of the kids, you're preaching to 7% of your population. Did you hear me on that one? That is not mainstream America anymore. Well, uh, and so when when things fell apart in this country, and, uh, and they did bad, I mean morally, it's just amazing what's happened here. Uh, incredible effort was made from the late uh, uh, 70s on to correct that problem. A lot of our seminaries thought before, well, we had a class now and then on marriage and you know that kind of thing, but, but now we got a whole degreed program on marriage and family child counseling. Uh, degreed programs sprung up all over our country. Books came out by the buckets full on, on helping our marriages and our and families and, and uh, single parenting and divorce recovery and, and you name it. In fact, I remember a debate years ago, should you even have a divorce recovery class or single parenting? Isn't that enabling them to continue in that kind of lifestyle? Well, that's true. I mean, we, that was actually a big question about 20 years ago. Well, uh, it's not anymore. I mean, you know, we just had to deal with reality. Well, anyway, uh, so at that time, degree programs sprang up around our country. Uh, and, of course, being a seminary, we had to be accredited, so somebody's going to teach there. They had to have their doctorate. So where would they get their doctorate from? They want to teach counseling. Christian schools? Psychology degrees? No, no, no. They were all secular. Even to this day, most of the uh, schools, like Rosemead, where I came from, and, and Fuller, and, and others that I know, most of their profs all got their degrees from secular schools. Now, I'm not bad-mouthing them. I'm, I'm not trying to blame anybody here. I'm not anti-psychology. Every systematic theology book has a section of psychology. You do know that, don't you? They may call it anthropology, but in a sense, they're trying to... De- I mean, if you went back and read Common, Made Holy, we gave a great deal of attention as to the inner working of man and how we think and feel and who we are. I mean, that's not psychology, folks. That's just legitimate, good, you know, systematic theology in terms of who we are and how we relate to God and, and you know, et cetera. You know, what you're against is a liberal psychology like you'd be against a liberal theology. You say, well, there's bad counselors out there. Folks, there's bad pastors out there, really bad ones. <laughs> there's some who are working for the other side, you know. So, I mean, there's, there's bad lawyers too, but there's good lawyers. There's good doctors, there's good pastors, there's good counselors. Most of the counselors I know, I really feel called by God to, to help people. And uh, some of them, unfortunately, have received a grid that they're, all they're doing is nice Christian people doing secular counseling. Uh, all that's in a rather dynamic flux here today. And uh, ours is not to alienate and polarize. Ours is to build bridges and inform and do what we can. And, you know, because they're not bad people. I'm, they're the good people. They really love, they care for people. In fact, what happened is we had a caring drain from our pastoral ministries. Because 30, 40 years ago, if you really cared for people, you'd probably choose to be a pastor. Now, no, I don't want to be a counselor because I really care for people. That's a dynamic change in our culture. What that left us with, a bunch of people preparing for the pastors who wanted to be many theologians, but don't know how to make a house call. And, um, not that they necessarily should, but I mean, don't know how to. And, uh. Well anyway, uh, arguably the most visibly successful ministry in the country today in terms of finances and size and influence is focused on the family. I mean dwarfs in the other radio ministry, including Swindoll's, it's incredible. Uh, The number one selling video of all time, secular and sacred. Number one of all time, Gary Smalley series, secular or sacred. Sold more video series than any other work. Number one selling books in your bookstore. You know, are family-oriented, relationship-oriented. With all of that, degreed programs, radio ministries, uh, videos, tapes, books, how are we doing? Never in the history of humanity has there been a greater effort to to address these issues. How are we doing, folks, if we're honest about it? Anything wrong with it, with uh, those books, tapes, programs? No, see, that's the subtleness of this thing is... Good spokes, well thought out, very well defined spokes. All of them in proper order would work wonderfully well. You can't do it. You end up with marriage counseling that sounds like this. Well, sir, if you would only um, love your wife as Christ loved the church, and let me give you some suggestions on how to do that. You know, first of all, learn how to speak to her in a kind way. And, and ma'am, if you would only respect your husband and submit to him so the word of God isn't dishonored. You know, all of that is actually very good biblical advice. Certainly nothing wrong with it. In the appropriate order, it would probably be very effective. But if that person is all tore up on the inside. That's going to go right over their head, folks. You're going to, they're going to lose it all. They are not yet able to receive that. Now, if you got a problem with that, I'll stay and answer any question you want to afterwards. But I have not seen it work, folks. Trying to change their behavior. Even bringing conviction and guilt. Okay, I'm sorry I did that and I confess it to God and I'm never going to do it again. Baloney. It's a law process. That is not a grace principle, folks. It isn't going to work. I've had couples come to my conference and marriage is all tore up. One guy sits there and one gal sits there and they tell me about their marriage and we hope this will fix our marriage. I said, forget your marriage. You couldn't get along with your dog right now. You're so tore up on the inside that I want you to somehow externally behave in a way that's not even true. You're trying out of your flesh to live the Christian life. Uh, you know, the amazing part about that is when I see them get connected to God, watch what happens. Man, I've seen them walk out hand in hand. You know, never even hardly dealt with marriage issues. But boy, you get that person. See, here's my belief. You get a person connected to that vine, you know, to that hub, abiding in Christ, in the first half of Paul's epistles, they will do the second half instinctively. That will be the natural thing for them to do, or better, supernatural thing for them to do. They will be able now to do that. And before, I don't think they could. You know, the, And you know, the worst part about it is they want to. These are Christians. They want to live the Christian life. They want... They don't like living this way. They don't like going home to a, a war game every night. They they hate that. People hate bondage. They honestly do. You know, they might try to convince you life is good. And, you know, sitting down there in that singles bar, you know, sniffing on drinks every night. Don't buy it for a second, folks. They're miserable. I remember I spoke to a parents without partners, and I was sandwiched between the happy hour and the dance. This is not a Christian ministry. Why they asked me, I have no idea. And I was sitting by a gal and, And she had a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other. The ice cube melted in her drink. The cigarette burnt down until there was nothing left. Actually, she never smoked or drank. Uh, She was just to be part of that group right there. She would put a drink in one hand and a smoke in the other. And uh, I was sitting with my wife, and I said, uh, uh, I don't know how we got her onto it, but she got very personal. And and I said, uh, <clears throat> How would you feel? I said when you first got a divorce. He said I couldn't leave my house for a year. Well, I went to work, but other than that, I didn't leave my house for a year. I said, what brought you out? Door to door salesman, you know, which was unfortunate. It was it was a was trying to overcome my loneliness and had a one night stand and embarrassed her so bad she moved. You know what? I just felt sick about. There, there were 500 people on that Friday night appearance without partners. I was in the church of 2,000. We didn't have one ministry to people like this. I'll tell you, it really bothered me, folks. So bad I went home and started a ministry. You can't believe the people that came out of the walls. <laughs> you know, desperately. You know, but you start a ministry like that, they're not able to hear the word of God. These people are in pain. That is that's one of the saddest groups you ever worked with. My heart goes out to them, but I, you know, it's like well, you know, one gal got a divorce. He said, her husband just cheated on me and left. And she said, what do I do? You know, I didn't want this. I didn't. He cheated on me. He left. And what do I do? Where do I go? Well, I go to a church. And everybody's sitting there holding hands. It's painful, folks. I and mean, They don't need any more criticism. Uh, boy, they desperately need the body of Christ. And uh, just like you do, too. It's easier for you if you're married, you know, or... At least been married once. Well anyway, uh, see, I really believe this. I really believe that if this person got so right with God, you know I just I think one testimony is worth a thousand words, but uh, just to show you how something can be reversed, <clears throat> listen to this, it said, uh, this is a quote quote, "In August I met with my ex-husband for the first time in several months. He was now a Christian, had learned to overcome pressure, time and trials." He was attending New Market Alliance Church and recommended two of Neil Anderson's books, Victory Over the Darkness, Bondage Breaker. I was intrigued by his peace and contentment and wanted very much to feel the same way. i have been attending the Catholic Church, and however, after I mean I decided to attend his, this Alliance Church. I've never looked back, and reading Victory Over the Darkness, my identity in Christ was affirmed. I could find true fulfillment and satisfaction in only one relationship— with God through Jesus Christ. The bondage breaker took me through the steps to freedom. Where confusion and anxiety had plagued my days and nights, I now felt order and peace. I was shown that my life could have wholeness and meaning. End of quote. This is an excerpt taken from my testimony, my baptism. I want to thank you for writing your books. <clears throat> they have truly helped to change my life. God's timing is perfect and it was exactly what I needed to recognize my sin and, and uh, give me the strength and hope I needed. It was evident I needed to change from the self-centered person I was to walking in obedience to God with Christ. My marriage has been reconciled. Praise and glory to God. Now, when was it reconciled? Well, not until she got right with God. You see, simply put, uh, if you got a church full of people who are in bondage, you got a church in bondage. you got a church full of people who uh, have broken marriages, you got a broken church, folks. The whole cannot be greater than the sum of its parts. And until we help our individuals get free, your marriages aren't going to get free. They're not going to be one in Christ. What fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? Um, and until you help your church resolve their issues. And I can help an individual and I put him back into that sick church, chances are he's going to get sick again. And I, and I help that teenage boy and put him back into a sick home, dysfunctional family. Chances are he's going to go back the same way as he went before. Why did he go there in the first place? You know, so it, this is a serious thing here. I mean, on the other hand, there is an overall approach that I think we can make that would actually not help us manage our conflict, not learn to live, to cope in life, but eventually become overcomers. He who overcomes will endure to the end. And then, that, that rather than, than managing my conflict, how about resolving it? Actually, having a means to resolve it. Now, let me show you how critically important this is. Uh, How many would be willing to share all the dirt in their life just for the purpose of sharing it with somebody? Not me. Why would I want to do that? I mean, I wouldn't want to do that. How many would share all the dirt in their life for getting some explanation as to why you're all screwed up? Well, some will. Some do. Some pay money to do it, actually. Now, honestly, folks, that's as far as secular counseling can take you. You learn all these skills of accurate empathy, congruence, genuineness, concreteness, and whatever else. And and you know nothing wrong with those things, by the way. Those are sh- those are really good learned skills for every Christian ministry, whether you're a disciple or pastor or anybody else. I mean, they're just good skills. That's all they are. What's the intention of them to drive, to develop a trusting relationship, and that uh, you know so that I can pull that story out of you. And and let's say you are very caring kind of a person, and, and you developed a wonderful, trusting relationship, and they shared you their whole story. And you were brilliant enough to reconstruct their entire past, and then explain with great precision why they're all screwed up. So now what? That's like telling an alcoholic, I think I know why you drink, and he might say, you're right. You want to drink with me? <laughs> now see, you know, much of what we learn from the world was simply to explain. Now I've got to tell you, there is some limited value to that. All you've done is explain somebody's pattern of their flesh. That's all you've done. Uh, You see, they have no gospel. I'm still a victim. I will be all my life. you got a gospel. I can't fix your past, but I believe by the grace of God you can be free from it. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be standing in front of you today. I believe that. I believe that's actually inherent in the gospel. Now, how many would be willing to share all the dirt in your life for the purpose of resolving it? Oh, man, watch what happens. I mean, you almost can't explain it. I Over the years ago, I remember pastors and missionaries, counselors would bring somebody by, and would you try to help this person? I'm getting nowhere with them. And sit down in an afternoon and watch them come to freedom. And And, you know, more times than not, they would share stuff in that little time That that counselor or pastor or missionary never heard. I've been working with this person. You're a wonderful counselor. It has nothing to do with me. Well, I shouldn't say nothing, but not much. Not much, really. They're not sharing it with me, folks. They're sharing it with God. For the purpose of resolving it. And listen to this, it's so critical. 2 Corinthians 7 says, I'm glad you made sorrowful. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance that led to life without regret. I've seen people share dirt in their life and resent it and regret it so bad the next day they'll never see you again. I have yet to see a person come to true repentance and regret it afterwards. Not one person. I'm mad at you for setting me free, you know. No, I've never heard that. I've uh... And you know what's amazing about it is? What stays with you as a, as a concerned person is not the garbage they went through but the victory at the end. And you walk out and you're rejoicing too. Thank you, Lord, for what you just did. Why don't we do that? I don't think we've had a, 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 a theology of resolution. I have. We've had a theology of coping. It's, it's like we never had a gospel, that there actually isn't a means for this person to be a new creation in Christ. That's why positional sanctification is so critically important. And, and why it's necessary to be firmly rooted in Christ before you can be built up in him. And in the process of doing that, you say, Where is spiritual warfare? It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue of uh, cleaning up the garbage and getting rid of the stupid bats. Uh, it's an issue of submitting to God and resisting the devil. You see, the old question is, well, one of my is my problem psychological, one is spiritual. I honestly believe that's a false dichotomy. Your problem is never not psychological, not in the true sense of that word. Your mind, your emotions and will and feelings are never part of the equation, folks. That's just, that's you. Your humanity is not in question on this side of eternity. and That's always a part of it. On the other hand, your problem is never not spiritual. There is no time when God is not here. He holds all things together according to the counsel of his will. And to my knowledge, there is no time when it's safe to take off the armor of God. The possibility of being accused, attempted, and deceived, that's just a continuous reality. Now, if I can accept that, I'll stop polarizing into psychotherapeutic ministries that ignore the reality of the spiritual world, or jump into some kind of deliverance ministry that ignores developmental issues and human responsibilities. I don't believe either answer is sufficient. you got a whole God that deals with a whole person that takes into account all of reality, and so does your Bible. You know, don't build your ministry on one verse. It has to be built on the whole counsel of God. Uh, and seen life from his perspective, I, I just can't overstate that, uh, and, and will not stop overstating it or trying to for the rest of my life. I, you just, you just have to deal with all of reality, but don't learn reality from the secular world. They don't have all reality. That which is seen, is temporal. That which is eternal, you know, is not. It will go on forever. Actually, the world, the Bible presents the unseen world is more real than the present one you see. Because that which is seen as temporal is passing away. That which is unseen is eternal. That's really true. That's why to get from a time orientation to an eternal one is so important for every believer. Because if you don't, then death to you is a tragedy. But from God, precious in the sight of God is a death one of my godly ones. Because from an eternal perspective, where are they? They're with the Lord, no more pain. From a time orientation, it's all loss. Isn't that true? now in our christ-centered marriage book we found out i could help you individually but you still got issues to deal with as a couple and so the intention of the christ-centered marriage is a, is a whole process of setting your marriage free now it's the same kind of a concept we think the wonderful counselor is god and uh, you could actually take that workbook sit down i did and i did with my wife and jack who co-authored the book did it with his wife nancy i'll be honest with you folks there was about two hours of pain and I thought we had an excellent marriage and talked about everything. <laughs> it's amazing what it surfaces, and a lot of people write it this way. He said, "You brought us all away from pain and anger and bitterness to forgiveness, freedom, and joy." I've been married for 20 years as a single. Now I'm married as a as a couple. And uh, where was the oneness before? And uh, and there has to be issues, ways of of resolving those things. Most people tell us, even of good marriages, man, this service a lot of stuff this week. <laughs> well. Some can't handle it. I'll be—I have to be upfront about this one with you. If one person doesn't want to get right with God, you as a couple cannot be. Can't be. And I don't care what kind of counseling you do. And uh, but this will resolve something for you. I, I'll almost guarantee you that. Well, because it's a real submission before God. Well, the next step in is what about our churches? Same thing has happened. I think what we've done over the years is built some incredibly good spokes. There is a church that has great programs. I'll never forget when I was doing a conference down in Arkansas at this church. And uh, it seemed like a fine church. I kind of find out later the church was a little bit under fire, or the pastor was. And uh, it just so happened the week before he had a parade of programs. And he had every ministry bring a flag across the front of the thing to show all the programs our church was doing. And then I come in the next week and do this conference. Oh, gosh. I didn't didn't know that. And, uh, you know, there ain't a condemning bone in my body. You know, (laughs) my ministry is reconciliation, not condemnation. But it really brought to surface some interesting issues for him that he was uh, heard through the grapevine, was actually pleased to hear. But anyway, it's it's interesting because uh, you look at one issue, for instance, the whole issue of church growth. You know, the church growth movement is fascinating because we always go through movements and, and you know, my, my frightening thing is is that this is just another movement or phase the church is going through and not finding a real stable whole answer for our church. Uh, I don't think it is, but it surely could be. But uh, uh, just like the seeker-sensitive movement probably will come and go and, and other issues like that, it's uh, movements, you know. remember back in the 70s, the uh, body life was the big thing. We got into body life. Ray Stedman wrote uh, Body Life, and, and uh, everybody wanted to discover them. Gee, if uh, we don't just have one pastors, we're all in the ministry here. Then everybody needs to know their spiritual gifts. So we went through the spiritual gifts movement. Remember that one? Late 70s, early 80s. <coughs> then what came? Church growth movement. <coughs> Boy, we got a church growth. You know, there was a tremendous downside to this in one aspect of it. For put an incredible girl trip on a lot of pastors. Oh man, it just spurred a lot of our pastors to get out and flog the sheep or do something to get grow, church growth happening and and, uh, and people went off and got their doctor ministries and church growth. I know I taught them and, and uh, all the principles of church growth and you know do demographic studies of your community and but there was something always about that process that that bothered me. not that we want to be reminded again of world evangelization, and, and we were. that would, and, and the interesting part about it is the principles really were good, and frankly, biblical. That's what's so deceptive about this thing. Nothing wrong with the spokes. They are actually a necessary part of the wheel. But we put all of our confidence in programs and strategies. What program are you using? Does it work? What's your strategy? See, that's what we've asked. Uh, well, yeah, it really works man. you know, and, um, you know, it's kind of fascinating to me. It's like looking at crusade, which is a a very close to the campus crusade for Christ ministries. In fact, they set up almost half of my overseas work. And, uh, so I'm very close to them. A lot of race. Well, anyway, but you look at a bill bright, here's a man who has a heart for God. I mean, a heart for God. Whew. Uh, I know him well enough to can say that. I remember Frank Barker down in Birmingham, Alabama, put it so well. He said, 20 years ago, I asked Bill Bright. I said, Bill, how can I pray for you? He said, pray that I don't lose my first love. Ten years later, he said, I asked him the same question. He had the same answer. Pray that I don't lose my first love. There's a heart for God. Develop some tools. Ten basic steps to Christian maturity and and transferable concepts and, and the four spiritual laws. And God has used them all over the world. First generation knew Bill. Uh, one of our important staff members, Ron and Carol were with us it was part of his early days, and they all were a family and knew each other. The second generation comes along; they kind of know Bill and, um, and uh, but very familiar with the tools. Third generation, they don't know Bill. They come to Christ through the tools. They think it's the tool. Here, just share this tool. It's like the steps to freedom. They don't set you free, folks. Who set you free? What sets you free? Your response to him in repentance and faith. It's just a tool. It could be used wrong. It could be used right. Uh, You know, it could be misunderstood. It is misunderstood. But, you know, that don't keep me from putting it out there any more than God, you know, kept the word of God from us because we'd misunderstand it. And uh, isn't that true? (laughs) Fortunately, nobody's misunderstanding the Bible. So I mean, that's got to make God nervous. You know, I, I took a risk here and I revealed myself to you and some of you uh, end up in Jehovah's Witnesses, and some of you end up Mormons, and some of you thought I was a God. And Oh my gosh, read it again, would you please? You know? So, I mean, you know, I, that's a risk everybody takes, you know, in terms of making material available, but that's a risk I felt I had to take. I said, here, it's a tool. But the tool doesn't set you free. It's just a tool in your hands. It's a process. It's a, it's a path back. You know, if you were lost in the maze... Would you want a mazeologist coming to explain to you all the intricacies of mazes and give you coping skills so you could exist in the maze the rest of your life? I mean, that's where we're at, folks. Man, if I was in a maze, I would want to know the way, the truth, and the life. How in the world do I get out of here? There's a million ways you can go wrong, but the path back to God can't be that numerous. And this is the best roadmap I can give you right now. There may be a better one. You know, I have no problem with that. In fact, people are improving it all the time. Bless your heart. Send me your copy. And, uh, but if I took them all right now, it'd be eighty seven steps to freedom. So it's, uh, <laughs> and, uh oh, man. I've had no problem convincing lay people of that. <laughs> You're talking about my church, you know. Some pastors have been defensive about it, and, uh, you know, which is unfortunate. Others haven't. When I first uh, came out with this book, I did a doctor ministry class at Trinity. Oh my gosh, the class had filled up by two months before <laughs> I was supposed to come. And, and they, they let people keep coming and overflowing. And it was just really an interesting thing. Story after story that week of pastors just struggling. You know, one pastor came to me and said, you know, I, I uh, called to this church. The pastor left for uh, just personal readings and reasons and never was told. And so they basically uh, <coughs> rose up and gave the previous pastor a going away uh, party and, uh, and celebration and gave him gifts and thank you so much for serving us all these years and we're going to miss you so much. And then they called this new pastor only to find out <coughs> the previous pastor had uh, had uh, been caught a number of times in sexual immorality and instead of uh, dealing with it, they covered it up and told everybody he had to leave for personal reasons. Of course when the church found out about it, did they feel ripped off or what? Now this new pastor comes in, hi, follow me, <laughs> respect me, would you please? <laughs> you do not Why not? <laughs> well because leadership had just let us down so bad I can't believe it. I remember I was in a major church in California Three previous pastors, all left for sexual immorality. It's a huge church. I had two people come to me during the course of that conference. They were so ticked off, not at the two previous pastors, but at the present board, who they felt didn't deal with and covered it up. They were mad at the leadership of that church. And and it undermined it. And uh, see, there's part of our struggle for seeing this, we have emphasized for so, so, so long a personal relationship with God We've done it at the expense of a corporate relationship with him. But I uh, I really believe that there's a body of Christ here. There's only one church in Sioux City, Iowa. There's many local expressions to it, but there's only one body of Christ, folks. You know, you may be the arm or the leg. Somebody has to be the... <laughs> but anyway... <clears throat> And that's my church. <laughs> yeah. We got spared from those body parts, you know, it's the toes and the legs, the I can't say to the hand. But anyway, there are other parts of the body. Well, uh, how do we deal with that? Well, it's not my fault. You see, part of the reason is is that when we came to our English Bible, it doesn't have a plural you. Do you realize that? They do in the South, you and you all, but we don't think that's good English, so we don't put that in our Bibles. And so you come to a passage that says, you, you think he's talking to you, he's talking to the church. How many of your epistles are written to churches? Here's a good illustration. Uh, I urge you to forgive, you to forgive, because we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes, singular or plural. It's plural. He's talking to the church of Corinth who had a discipline, so now he's urging the church corporately to forgive. Now, mind you, that it has application to individuals because you can't have corporate forgiveness without individual forgiveness, can you? It would be impossible to. So if the church was to forgive corporately, they'd have to forgive individually. And frankly, they'd have to do it first. Uh, to affect marital freedom and corporate freedom without individual freedom? can't have it. But you can resolve things on a corporate level that makes it possible for individuals to come later and and, uh, and really find their freedom in Christ. Well, how do we do that? Well, it's a corporate process. We get the board and the staff together, and, and um, it's non-confrontational. It's not a finger-pointing deal. But they sit down as a group, and they uh, pray through a, a process of, of strengths. We always start there first. Weaknesses, painful memories, look at corporate forgiveness, uh, corporate sin. And uh, that's hard because people have trouble understanding that. Well, I didn't do it. But let me just be honest with you, folks. Let me give you an illustration of corporate sin. It was never resolved. When Israel and Judah divided, every king of Israel, twenty some kings, all godless, all and it says this for each one, continued in the sins of Jeroboam. It says that of every one of them. See, I'm convinced any one of them could have said Jeroboam was wrong. We gotta repent of this, go back to Jerusalem and worship the way God said us to. None of them did. What happened to Israel? It's gone. Daniel had some exceptions. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, but they all stood and said, we have sinned. Now, we wouldn't do that today. We would say, our forefathers sinned, and I'm stuck out here for 70 years because for 490 years they didn't do this. They didn't do that. They modeled something for us. We have sinned. Here's my point. Every generation that comes along has a responsibility to resolve that issue, and if you don't, you're as guilty as the one who started it. you mad at me? I really believe this is true. That sin will just sit there and sit there. Wow, the pastor's gone now. The Problem's over with? No, it's not. It's still out there. And see, we talk to denomination leaders, and they can tell you this: there's a church over there that'll kill pastors. Those kill them. And uh, or here's one that has this problem: they keep running off people, or whatever, you know. And and uh, and you go back and you look at the history, and uh, you're going to find out it's just a real baggage and garbage that was never was dealt with there. And uh, when he writes to the seven churches. In Revelation, he says, I know your deeds. I, there's 50 references to I in those, in those seven letters. I is Christ. It's his church. He knows you. Knows your church, knows your past. He's infinite in his knowledge. Knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Loves you anyhow. And each one ends. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. And just like in personal counseling where I don't see myself as a counselor, I see him as a wonderful counselor. I'm a facilitator. I see the same process here. I'm not a church consultant that comes out and analyzes your churches and tells you what's right and wrong and makes suggestions and hope you follow through on them. You know the long-term result of that kind of consultation is? Just about zip, folks. Just about zip. And I've heard that one church consultant after another tell that church is willing to come to terms with their past they're not going to get on with the future. Instead, it's a facilitating role. We're going to sit down and just facilitate the process. And you know, in this last year, I had the privilege to do that in one of the largest denominations in this country at their top. And three days later, I did it for dinner seminary. You know, I share that only with you, not because they had problems. Probably the ones who are willing to do it have less problems than those that don't. I, that's what I've observed. It's because they want to do everything they could to get right with God. And that's the spirit of the age that I'm sensing that God is doing in our country. The good news about all this is you have nothing to lose, but you may have an incredible Freedom to be gained and I said the safest part about this is you take somebody through the steps of freedom the worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to be really ready for communion next Sunday <laughs> and you don't have to apologize to God about anybody for that one all you're doing is help them repent and submit to God resist the devil and by the way I need to say this uh, that you got one tool that serves such an incredible variety of problems some have deep deep spiritual problems and others don't hurt at all I said, would you do the same thing? And the answer is, yes, I would. And let me tell you why. Um, the issue isn't to me, the devil. It's their relationship with God. Those are issues that are critical in their relationship with God. And a lot of the terminology in there is, is, uh, is resisting the devil, et cetera, Like that. You say, what well, if there's no devil there to resist? So? So? So what? Uh, yeah, you've done nothing wrong. Even in the terminology, by saying, I like, submit to God and resist the devil. Uh, and, and frankly, in the people that I've dealt with, the, the quote, demonic influence can be almost zip. I mean, hardly noticeable, no interference at all. And, and walk right through it. I said, I'd still do the same thing because I don't care if the influence is 5%, 20 30, 50, 60, 80%. The answer still is to submit to God first. And if there's no devil there to resist, the terminology won't hurt you one bit. And I've never seen anybody end up to be focused that direction afterwards. They always end up focused towards God. And, and walk out for the first time in their life. They know who they are as a child of God. And I know it's connected. That's what I'm looking for more than anything else. Finally, I understand what it means to be a child of God. And, uh, and to, uh, to have that sense of assurance. It's like one pastor told me. He said, I won't take anybody through that process unless I'm sure to their salvation. So it's the other way around, brother. Assurance comes afterwards. If the Holy Spirit's going to bear witness with your spirit, everybody that I found that was in bondage, that wasn't there until they got resolved, those issues resolved. When they resolved, it was there. I mean, and they knew it. <laughs> you can just look at their face, the joy in their life. I just close with this, and uh, I got some time for some questions if you want to. Dear Neil, 1993, I purchased a set of your tapes. After listening to these tapes, I began applying your principles to my problems. I realized that some of my problems could be spiritual attacks, I learned how to take a stand and won some victories over some problems in my life. It's only the tip of the iceberg. I'm a deacon and a preacher in a Baptist church. My pastor was suffering from depression and other problems I was not aware of. In 1994, he committed suicide. This literally brought our church to its knees. I knew some of the problems of the previous pastors and felt it was spiritual, but didn't know how to relay it to the people since the devil or demons cannot affect a Christian. Right? And I'm in capital letters, quote, right? Isn't that amazing how some people could think that way? So the armor of God is for the non-believer? <clears throat> the church elected me as her interim pastor. While in a local bookstore I saw a book of yours and studying in your church for you. I purchased it, I read it. I felt with all the spiritual suppression in the church this was the answer. Only one problem, to get the rest of the church to believe. <clears throat> That's a problem. <laughs> By the way, let me stress this. Uh... Don't ignore the order of scripture. You could come home from a conference like this and get all excited and say, man, I'm going to jump to Ephesians 6 and tell them about our armor. I wouldn't do that if I was you. I would start in Ephesians 1 and tell them who they are in Christ. Uh, You can create a lot of fear in people's minds if you haven't clearly established what the answer is first. That's why I'm afraid a little of the second coming literature that, you know, that frightens people into making a decision for Christ because uh, they may be left behind in the rapture. I'm not totally against it, but I mean, I'm just, boy, there's this repair work I think needs to be done after something like that. If you just scared them out of hell into heaven, uh, uh, what is going to be their motivation to God now is to avoid punishment instead of drawing close to God. I am just absolutely find it paradoxical that we insist that our people are, are sinners, but if they don't act like saints, I'm going to have to discipline you. Now, if that isn't a sick conundrum, I don't know what is. It's like telling my dog, you're really not a dog. If you don't start meowing like a cat, I'm not going to feed you anymore. Well, he's going to starve to death, folks. He's not a dog or a cat. He's a dog. And, you know, if you if a person really is who God says he is, he's a saint, he's a child of God, then he can live like one, can he? Are you wondering about that or is it really true? Don't you find that paradoxical? How could you expect a person to live a holy life? If they're a sinner? If they're a sinner, what do sinners do? What do they think in their core identity is? Is that true? Anyway, the church elected me as their interim pastor. When I look at a bookstore, I saw a book of years of sitting in the church. I purchased it right. I felt with all the spiritual suppression in the church, this was the answer, only one problem to get the rest of the church to believe. After a few weeks of preaching on spiritual things, I knew we had to act on setting your church free. Previous pastor that killed himself would not believe your material. He would never read or listen to your message. Isn't that paradoxical? I mean, I had one guy really going after me in this country, and when I actually pinned him down what he'd read. Guess what happens? Nothing. I don't know what he was going on. Hearsay. It just was amazing. Nothing. Anyway, slowly the people accepted my message. I was able to contact one of your staff. He flew to Houston in 1994, led the leaders of our church through the setting of church free. The leaders loved it. <clears throat> That's really been our experience. Not going in, but coming out. A lot of fear and apprehension going in. I can understand that. But man, if you got rid of that bag of rocks off your back, you'd feel pretty good, wouldn't you, going out? I felt step one was passed. Next, I wanted to take all the people through the steps to freedom. Six weeks later, I was able to do so. I really don't understand it. We were set free from the spiritual bondage of multiple problems. Can't put an in a letter. I'd write a book. During all of this time, one of my middle-aged members who was an evangelist was set free, learned who he was in Christ, back in the ministry, praise the Lord. I saw the twin daughters of the deceased pastor set free, able to forgive their father. Twin girls were able to go on with their lives. At one point, one of the twins was kind of playing suicide. This is a new church. God is free to work here. In September, we founded our pulpit community. Our church voted 100% for our new pastor. This has never happened in our church before. This is an independent, fundamental Baptist church. That's why it never happened there before. <laughs> well, when you do think God's way, you get God's results. I have all of your material, published videos, books, tapes. I love your ministry. I also work one night, one night a week in the Harris County Jail. Next to Los Angeles County, we have the largest county jail in the country. I work with homosexual men and i seen God set many of them free. Now, can a church go from that kind of conflict to that kind of freedom in that short of time? Sure. But you have to want it to. You really have to want it too, folks. We all have to want that. I mean, you can leave the bats in the cave if you want to. You can step between the piles of dew. and um, But I don't want to live that way. I don't want to see a church. I see chains hanging all over God's people, marriages, and ministries. And I believe he came to set the captive free. And I believe that actually is inherent in the gospel. I really do believe that that freedom of Christ is a positional truth. But our estimate is only about 15% are living that way. And if only 50% of our people live in that way, what's the nature of our marriages and our churches? Not very good. What if your new members class taught them who they were in Christ and gave them an opportunity to go through something like this? I know some churches that are doing that right now. It's really exciting. And uh, instead, what we do is we teach them the history of our denomination and make them ancestor worshipers. And uh <clears throat> You're supposed to laugh right now. It's scary. Thank you. And, uh, you know, but it's really kind of sad in a way. Why not tell them who they are in Christ? Tell them what the gospel is. Don't just tell them how your church works. Tell them what the church is. It's the body of Christ. And, uh, you know, once that gets established, you're it kind of, well, actually happens to your people. It's just rather exciting. And uh, how it can happen is what you're going to hear in this next couple of hours here because it's happened there. Man, here's a church, I think six years ago, I walked in, it was in bondage. It's one of the most vibrant living churches in, in Minneapolis right now. Leading church in the cities. Just alive in Christ. Not because what I did. Number one, because of what God did. Number two, because of what their staff did. Not what I did. At best, I'm a facilitator. But their ministry they started has, has led hundreds and hundreds of people to freedom and networking now throughout the cities. And you want to hear about that. had 4,200 people at Philippine Convention Center. And I heard a lot of missiologists say, oh, I think the truth and kind of will work here, but not over there. And I said, they loved it, man. They were so excited to hear this thing that I could sit down in a quiet, controlled way and help the whole person that before the week was out, they were going home and doing it. <coughs> in fact, on Friday, they had testimonies of one person after another. Uh, this year, I'm going to Panama. I was there about two weeks ago. All of our material, all of it, is in Spanish, except for videos, all of it. There, David Eckelberger, who owns Spanish House, is so on board with us. One of our staff is down in Bogota right now, um, but going there, going to Bogota this summer, going to Uruguay, Argentina, Chile, going to be in Malaysia and Singapore in about two weeks, going to uh, France, Austria, and Switzerland Sweden, Sweden, It's my background, never been there. So my grandpappy came from there, so I'm going to see if I can find the roots of that. But no, I find, and, and the identity issue, oh man, for them, it's like a breath of fresh air. You know, and, and you go to India, we have an office in India, and all this caste system, you know, you know that just, and our two people over there, a married couple that uh, really primarily running it over there, her father only recently acknowledged him because he was a lower caste. And you say, well, it doesn't exist anymore. Yes, it does. You know, until they deal with that issue, you know, it's, it's a huge embedded thing. and thing. Then to tell them, beloved, now you all are children of God. Christ is all and in all. For them, Is this is the message. This is the message. And uh, I had two Nazarene uh, missionaries from Haiti who went down to Haiti after the class I did at Trinity, Dr. Ministry class at Trinity. I got a 30-page letter from one of them who taught in their Bible school down there. He said, we got a revival, and we haven't even gotten a bondage breaker yet. We've just been telling them who they are in Christ. But you see, Haiti is a country that was given to the devil about 204 years ago. Honestly, it was actually committed to the devil. There was a place down there people, Christians, would not go. And finally, they, they worked up enough courage, not only went there and renounced that committed that place to the Lord, now it's a place for retreats. And the government protested it because it was against indigenous religions and that kind of stuff. Now the government's finally come around. Um, you know, just learning the fact that the, of our authority in Christ in the Philippines, a lady went back to her village, been a missionary for years, was told, don't go up to that village. There is a, a quack doctor up there, a witch doctor essentially, that is so powerful. And she was afraid of him. She went to our conference. I ain't got nothing afraid of him. There's not a verse in the Bible i him to fear him. I'm going to fear God. Went up there, led that guy to Christ, the whole blooming village is, is a is Christian. You know, we've sent our missionaries over with our Western world view. And, and it's just gone thud. And uh, and I was so aware of that because when I taught at Talbot, I had students come from Africa coming back and they said, You got these kind of problems here? I said, What did you think? You know, that they'd just be in Africa? Well, that was what they were led to believe because the missionaries never talked about it, so it must be a problem. In fact, their missionary boards had told them, "Let the uh, nationals deal with that. Don't you deal with it." Well, what are you communicating to them then? Now that's changing. Praise God, it's changing rather dramatically. But I find that the problems are basically pretty much the same all over the world, and I'll, I, I think, if in all honesty, they're a little bit worse here. I, I'm not saying that, you know, for any other reason. To just be honest with you. I think it's worse here, Uh, far more deceptive. I think uh, you talk about, you know, hardcore Satanism, that's almost unknown in the third world. You got witch doctors, quack doctors, and that kind of stuff, but hardcore worshiping the devil, like, it's far more entrenched in France and England the United States than anywhere else in the world. Uh, I mean, hardcore underground human people involved in rituals, that is far more entrenched in our Western world than anywhere else in the world. You know what? Well, I just talked with the uh, the second in-home missions with Grace Brother and here about it three weeks ago. And um, and he was, of course, we've known each other for years, and he's so excited about this thing. He said, you know what? You've given us a whole different approach to evangelism. Because when you go back to all those pagan countries, all our missionaries I report this. They all attended my thing in the Philippines four years ago. And it changed their whole focus on evangelism. And, uh, in our country, we see eternal life is a, is a hook or spiritual life, yeah, I'd like that kind of a thing. But for them, you know, they've been warding off deities for years by leaving little fruit baskets around, etc., like that. And instead of trying to appease the deities, you mean to tell me that I could actually have authority over them? That has been the number one gospel presentation now. And actually, if you look at much of the early church, that was true then too. You know, people came. Green said in his book, Evangelism Now and Then, essentially what he was saying was, he said, that the, to be free from spiritual bondage was the number one evangelistic appeal of the early church. Then he made an incredible statement. That likely will be true before the second coming of Christ. And I think what we're doing is we're missing one of the greatest evangelistic opportunities that we have. Now unfortunately, what happens is we're, we're emptying our churches and filling psych wards. You know, I want to empty psych wards and fill our churches. And So we do have an answer. For these kind of issues in life. We've almost forfeited it. Like sexual bondages. Oh, it's too big for us. Baloney. There ain't no bondage in life that God isn't bigger than. Isn't that true? I mean, you know, yes or no. I mean, it's, uh, you know, what the key is, we've we've missed it. We don't know how. You know, God has given us the keys to the kingdom. And, you know, that word key is interesting. Because I think, well, it's unlock a door. It's also used in Luke. And he said, uh where he said, we've given the key of knowledge. Ah, it's truth that sets people free, See, see. Uh, my issue is, is that we want to resort to some power mode. And I said, no, look for the key. Look for the truth that sets them free. You know, and I think I learned that early on when I first got married, I bought a power mower. And the first one ever one I ever had, you know, and I cranked that baby up. And the first time I used it, I'd hear an irrigation stem and, ch- and bent the shaft right in the block, mm. it stopped, man. And I couldn't even turn that thing over. Well, I was Mr. Fix-It. I'll fix it. So I went out and got myself a sledgehammer. And, and I'll, I beat on that thing, man. I never could get the stupid blade off. Well, finally, I threw the whole thing in a bucket and went down to a lawnmower guy. He looked at me and said, see that over there? I said, yeah. He said, well, straighten the shaft while it's still in the block for 10 bucks. I said, how much will it cost me now? He said, I'll fix it for 20. I said, well, go ahead. I said, but how do you get that blade off? Honestly, folks. He reached in his back pocket, took out a pliers, and pulled out a key I didn't see, and the stupid thing fell off. You know, I see the church operating like that. You know, it really is true. The Lord's bondservant should not be quarrelsome, be kind, able to teach, pace, him with wrong, if perhaps God may grant repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. You see, what you need to be is kind and gentle and know the truth. Uh, you need to be like Christ. And realize that he's the one who grants repentance. It isn't you. I'm not looking for somebody who learns a technique. We're looking for somebody who's dependent upon God. Who clearly knows that the one who grants repentance is God himself. He's the wonderful counselor. We're a facilitator. And we help facilitate a process. But, but you've got to know that, that only God himself has the capacity to change a man um, in the inside. That's not ours. But God uses us. We have an incredibly vital role to play in the body of Christ. But he needs a Lord's bondservant, somebody who's bonded to God themselves. You say a bondservant is not a negative thing. That means I'm bonded to God. And uh, and I'm serving him. If I'm serving him, I'm serving anybody else. <laughs> I'm not a slave to anything else. I was a bondservant to sin. Now I'm a bondservant to God. That's better. It's like lordship. Is that a negative doctrine? No, it's the most positive doctrine in the Bible. You make him the Lord of your life, he's Lord of your past, Lord of your future, Lord of your spouse, your kids. You know, everybody. And uh, it's the only answer. And I don't have to be. Any other questions? Let's go back to one. Uh, please repeat the question. I can read that. <laughs> uh, how do I see revivals, especially like the present ones? Next question. <laughs> I'd like to go back to one that I think is interesting. You ever read Jesse Penn Lewis's book, War on the Saints? The whole book essentially is an argument against passivity. She uh, actually wrote that book in response to the Welsh revival that started with deep repentance and people getting right with God and being reconciled to God and to each other. That would be genuine beginning repentance. What happened was it, it got carried off into all kinds of other manifestations and people started to chase that and the and the revival fell it uh, now what do i think about some of the present ones that are going on i really haven't been and I, I think i have to be honest and tell you that and uh i don't even have an awful lot of curiosity uh you know but i have nothing negative to say about especially brownville i mean you know all i hear is report after report of people repenting and coming to christ and Getting right with God, I said. You know the the problem that I have with our reaction to something like that is, is if if actually Pentecost happened today. First of all, you'd have three churches developed tomorrow. One who saw the tongues of fire. Oh, this is the tongues of fire church. You know, they get all caught up with the experiences and all, over here. You'd have one fall in that manifestation. You know, and then you'd have a whole group of of Christians saying, Hey, that can't be of God. They were, you know, look at that. They lost control entirely. They were speaking in tongues and tongues of fire. and You know, I know several radio ministries right now that bad mouth Pentecost that they had an opportunity to. That was not from God. That was from our conference coordinator. So put your trust in God. Anyway, you, you know, I'm not so sure if Jesus came on the scene right now in all of his glory, we'd totally recognize him. I think we all have, you know, I like Yancey's book, the Jesus, you know, I never knew. <laughs> and and we're getting closer, I think, to a true understanding of who God is. But I, but I think if God just dramatically intervened right now, it would cause everybody to be a little bit upset about something. You know, I'm not so sure we really want revival if we knew exactly what that meant. If it meant for me... To actually truly humble myself. I think people would probably choose to be a little bit more complacent about it. But I think that there's a growing hunger. For that kind of reality. In our churches very broad based. That really do want that revival. And they know good and well. It has to start with them. And they know good and well. If it really did come. It would be very humbling for all of us. Do you want that? I, I just got to be honest with you folks. There are people who don't want that. Not consciously not would even fight it, you know, they, I mean, you aren't going to have a bunch of people saying, I'm against any movement of God and revival, you're not going to get that. But they don't want to shake up the status quo too much, they don't want it to interfere with their retirement. You know, and I, I spoke at Wheaton after the revival that they had a year later, and, uh, you know, student after student was telling me that uh, that faculty became more and more upset that it was interfering with their teaching. Uh, that now they would have to uh, try to recover a lot of material. I don't think we're really totally prepared for God to, to interrupt my life that much. Are you, am I tracking here with you at all? I think if He came, your life would be interrupted uh, quite dramatically. And uh, are we prepared for that, or are we comfortable in status quo, and uh, or? could you wait about two years until I'm finished from the retirement, then I'll give my life to you. Well, anybody looks, you know, let me go bury my father first. You know, that was something they said in the early church. And, yeah, you know, I mean, I come this way again. Well, you know, its I don't think it's an easy thing. I, I think if we actually saw through the ramifications, I think it would disrupt our our uh, denominations and churches so dramatically. we would never be the same again. And I don't, I'm not sure most of us really want that. I know a lot of churches that don't really don't want a lot of growth because they bring in a lot of their old baggage with them. They don't talk the same language we do and they don't wear the same clothing. So you almost have to start a church for new believers over here because, frankly, they don't look like one of us. It's uncomfortable to be around a guy who hasn't matured enough to know he shouldn't be saying that. And stop picking your nose in the choir, for crying out loud. And, uh, you know, I, we're, we're our own enemies in this regard, I, I think. And maybe not consciously aware of it. But uh, we like our nice, comfortable churches, and uh, and I like to go back to my church and have some stability there and see my same old friends. And I, you know, and I, you know, I'm gone so much that I'd like to see them rather than go over and talk to that stranger and invite him to this church or invite him over to my house afterwards when I don't have much fellowship with people in my community. You see what I'm saying? Uh, so we get comfortable. Then we make comfortable churches, makes comfortable Christians, and we get comfortable. And uh, it's like the old Baptist who left his Baptist church and went to a liturgical church, and he was heard saying on the way out, man, I sure appreciate your lethargy. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> well, you got to go. God bless you. I hope you stay and listen to uh, uh, Judy Ezelke. She's re- Julie, she's really got something to say.